the value of investments can fall as well as rise and losses may be made. Welcome to this 91 Investment Views 2023 podcast. With me today, Archie Hart, Portfolio Manager of Emerging Markets Equity, Werner G. van Petiers, Co-Head of Emerging Markets Sovereign and FX, and also Victoria Harling, Head of Emerging Market Corporate Debt. Now, the first question I'm going to have to put to all of you, uh, namely Werner in this case, is inflation and interest rates so pertinent at the moment, Archie? And also, particularly the difference between EM and DM, emerging markets and developed markets, because it seems to me EM is behaving itself rather well under the circumstances. Any signs of it easing, inflation that is? Hi, Lindsay. Yes, certainly. We've seen ample signs of moderation in in inflation across emerging markets. And this is really driven by some of those large drivers really almost falling off a cliff at the moment. So if you look at the UN food prices, that was growing at 35% year on year in March. That's now about 5% year on year. PMI input prices have fallen now for six months in a row from March until September. If we look at high-frequency online numbers from price stats, it's an excellent source. They surveyed 25 countries' online prices. That is on the lower end of the range or making new lows across all of those. You know, we've got inventories growing at the fastest pace in 20 years. We've got supplier delivery times that have completely normalized. We've got shipping prices falling very sharply at the moment. So it is pervasive that inflation is falling across EM as a general rule. There's obviously some exceptions in Central and Eastern Europe, you know, with labor shortages and energy price pressures. But on the whole, inflation is really coming down in EM quite quickly at the moment. And is that because they started hiking rates much earlier than the, uh, the so-called developed world? Did it stave off the worst of inflation that is being endured by the Eurozone, by Britain, the United States? Was that a factor? That is exactly it. You know, EM has seen this movie before. They know how to react. And they started hiking really in September of last year already. So of the 18 largest markets we track in EM, 11 of those have hiked rates further than the US and 17 of the 18 have hiked rates further than the ECB, which is not tough because you know, they were so late in starting their cycle. So, you know, and the US is already 70% through their cycle. You know, we've got four countries that are done with their hiking and they are mostly in LATAM. So they've reacted quickly, very sharply, very hawkishly to fight inflation. Okay, I'm going to monopolise Werner, uh, Victoria and Archie, so please forgive me, but I need to go to growth now. I'm going to stick with you. Is slowing growth a global phenomenon or are there any EMs bucking this trend? In other words, going on their own path because they've staved off the worst of inflation. Give me an idea, please. It's difficult to escape the anchor that is higher real rates that drags economies and growth down. So outside of the commodity producers, really, I'd love to say that EM is bucking the trend, but it's just not. What is happening is that EM, because it is a commodity region on average, is slowing down much slower than the US. So the differential between US growth and EM growth is widening. So, you know, where last year that differential was 1% that's going to 2 and then going up to 3% if we use the IMF's latest World Economic Outlook that published now in October, the growth differential between the two is widening. And that, that is positive for asset prices in EM, is, is the growth differential for the outperformance of EM relative to DM. Very finally, on the growth front, there's been some gusty headwinds in 2022. <laughs> Is the weather going to become calmer in 2023? In other words, all the headwinds that we've spoken about in the previous few minutes, are they going to get a little bit more palatable? 
Well, the main driver, as I mentioned, was was the rate hikes and the higher real rates around the world. I mean, energy prices and consumers being under pressure is part of that. And then lastly, you know, confidence and animal spirits that drive consumers and ultimately demand and growth eventually. So if we take those one by one and we just look at the rate hikes, you know, the U.S. probably should be done with its hiking cycle in Q1 if all else stays as is at the moment. And, you know, you finally have a very lagging indicator, which is the labor market, which everybody is looking at at the moment. You know, when you drive into the fog, you slow down. So, you know, we anticipate the Fed to start slowing down pretty soon. Energy prices, you know, in Q1 next year, we should be going through the worst of winter. Energy stocks are quite high. Gas reserves are quite high across Europe. So, we should be okay through winter, so energy prices and their market forces should work and that there should be a response to high energy prices with increased demand, despite what OPEC Plus is doing. And then lastly, on the confidence in animal spirits, you know, that is quite dependent on what happens in the war in Russia-Ukraine, even though for a long time it was a bit of a storm in a teacup in terms of financial markets. But also, you know, there's China with the risks surrounding that and then escalating trade spat with the US. So there are risks, but I would say yes to your question that, you know, it is becoming clearer moving into next year. Archie, your turn now. Let's go to liquidity. Has liquidity been withdrawn from certain markets because of people just freezing, you know, being caught in the headlights? And which countries have done well and which countries have done badly? I think the bigger picture on liquidity is that we're seeing a lot of liquidity headwinds. And I don't think that's going to change in the very near term. So if we look at the Fed, it added $5 trillion to its balance sheet during COVID. They've only unwound that by about $300 billion. So we're roughly sort of 6% into quantitative tightening, which means we've got some way to go. And what we're seeing is this is setting tripwires for some markets. So the LDI crisis in the UK, which was essentially a liquidity crisis, some of the abrupt moves we've seen in markets like China. So I think liquidity is going to be a headwind for the time being and potentially going to cause volatility at certain times. Yes, indeed. When there's a lack of liquidity, the bid and the offer and the spreads just get wider and wider. And of course, as you quite rightly say, volatility. Okay, we're going to go to geopolitics now. Werner, I know I've used you quite a lot, but I want you to give me a one-line sort of summary of which markets have been most impacted by war in Ukraine. And then, Victoria, you're going to come in with some more detailed analysis, please. Yeah, so in our region, that's certainly Central Eastern Europe, where energy, fuel, electricity, gas prices from Romania to Hungary range from 30% to 60% up year on year still for those markets. So it's putting a lot of pressure on the consumers there. And then, of course, across the heavily importing African countries of food, food is large in the, in the consumer baskets, and that's pushed up wheat prices. So those are the markets most impacted. Okay, Victoria, let me just set the scene here because we're going to talk specifically higher commodity prices because they can be a double-edged sword for emerging markets. What's the reaction been over the last tumultuous year? Werner, you may want to comment on the impact from a pure headline macro perspective of EM versus DM on higher commodity prices. Yeah, so EM had a trade surplus with the developed world that ranged around the $60 billion a month mark pre-2021. That is now averaging around $130 billion a month surplus. So in aggregate, EM is benefiting as a commodity region from what's happened in the world. But Vic, I think you'd better place to talk about the idiosyncrasies between the yeah. markets and the companies within that. 
Yeah, I mean, we've seen 2021 was a phenomenal year for a lot of commodity producers in EM. And as a result, we've seen really strong fundamental results, companies with low leverage coming into this higher interest rate environment. But more recently, we've seen, for example, steel producers having much lower margins because their input costs have been driven higher, you know, be it coal, iron ore, because of the impact of Ukraine and sanctions on Russia. And they haven't been able to pass that through domestically. We expect that to normalise somewhat in the coming quarters, but that's due to all of the input costs sort of coming down and, and balancing out. Quite clearly, from a regional perspective, the Middle East have done phenomenally well from higher oil prices and gas prices. And it's really interesting to think of an economy like Saudi Arabia that is now trying to diversify quite meaningfully. But I will also say that one of the key things that is really encouraging from a global perspective is the shift to renewables. And, you know, if you take a country like India and the plans to really transition into hydrogen, it's been accelerated by the high input costs of, of coal, for example. So we're seeing escalated plans for a lot of REMs to transition, which is encouraging. The other side of the impact from Ukraine would be food prices. And here, you know, we've seen Brazil benefit quite meaningfully. In fact, we uh, invest in companies that provide crop security. And we've seen phenomenal growth out of those companies as people really want to protect their crops given the, the high value of them. So mixed across the world, agriculture's obviously done well, upstream oil and gas. And now we're seeing petrochemical companies and steel producers have their margin shrink because of the headwinds of growth versus the input costs that have been high. Has volatility, Victoria, been added to by, you know, fairly strained US-China relations? Obviously, commodities and China go hand in hand. Yeah, well, I think one of the major sort of drivers of iron ore prices historically have been China property. And I would say that US-China relations is one element, but the zero COVID policy in China has clearly driven a lot of shutdown in China and negative growth in China, which we're hoping very much that as we come into 2023, we get the uplift of China rebounding as they reopen up their economy. As we come into US-China relations, we have seen, you know, we can talk about the drivers of inflation, but supply chain dynamics have obviously been quite a big issue and the concept of onshoring. And that will continue to be a theme but we hope and we see supply chain dynamics easing now. And we hope very much going forward that we're going to see improvements on re-engaging on a global footprint for global supply chains. Let's stay with China now. And Archie, you're going to come in now because what are the relevant developments in and also related to China, this giant economy for investors in emerging market assets. And Victoria, if you want to come in on the property side, if you feel it appropriate after Archie's answered a couple of questions, please do. But Archie, over to you first, please. I think the major news from China just literally in the last week was around the 20th Party Congress. And the market generally interpreted that relatively negative because it's clear that Xi Jinping cemented his absolute rule over China and there's no signs of any challenge to that. And that's concerning because 
China's made a number of policy missteps over the last sort of couple of years. Belt and Road, COVID policy made in China, foreign relations generally, internet regulation, and again, what's happened in the property market. And the market was hoping for moderation in these policies, and clearly that moderation looks less likely to happen and perhaps to be much delayed. Although, again, any slight positive change in those policies, and there's been hints of a liberalization of COVID, have seen the markets go strongly better. So I think the general investor sentiment towards happenings in China is extremely negative at this point. We think that's probably overdone in the short term, but it's right to be certainly more cautious in the medium term. China policy has simply changed from where it was two or three years ago. Mm. Victoria, I know you're very, very close to the China property market. We have to bring it in because, to me, it's a very murky area. We see headlines, but beneath the headlines, I always get the impression that there's so much more going on. Would you agree with that? Do you want to comment? Yes, there's a lot going on that is still quite opaque. And hence, you know, to Archie's point, sentiment is at an all-time low because we have this lack of clarity on how to take what is an incredibly depressed sector and normalise it. So we have been waiting patiently for the last year for clear policy, and we are still waiting. There are individual policies and incentives being launched. And under the hood, we do see schemes being initiated to try and help. But as of now, we haven't seen anything that's meaningful enough to reinvigor the real estate space. What we have seen authorities do, and it makes sense in this sequence, to reopen the economy first, because that is the precursor for jobs and more positive sentiment domestically, which then should lead to a rebound in property sales, which should lead to a recovery in the sector. So if we are hearing positive signs that, you know, there is a plan to open up the economy. And if we can believe the more recent headlines that have been coming out, then we could be looking for quite a bright opening of China by first quarter 2023. And that could provide quite a lot of global impetus, actually, for renewed growth optimism. Okay. The final question is my favourite because it says, where do you see the best investment opportunities for 2023? And I'll incorporate the final question on China, which was going to be, (laughs) what do you expect in China for 2023, Archie? So what I'll do is I'll start with you, Archie. The bright spots for next year, the opportunities that you're licking your lips about after a fairly torrid recent period. Archie, your opportunities, please. Clearly, I think short term, things are going to be difficult because the market is continuing to struggle to triangulate between inflation, interest rates and growth. All three are moving fast in different directions and where they all end up will tell you something about where markets end up. But what I'd say is we get into the first half of next year, I'm actually very positive on the outlook for EM equities. And the reason I say that is for EM equities to be a good asset class for them to perform strongly, you need four things to apply. One is interest rates to have peaked. The second is the US dollar to have peaked. The third is developed markets to have bottomed out. And fourthly, for EM equities to be very cheap as that more positive rally begins. So clearly they don't apply now, but as we get into the first half of the year, I think it's quite likely we will see a peaking in interest rates from the dollar 
And that's going to be a great platform for much better performance. So really work very conservative and cautious in the short term, but much more positive on a 12-18 month view for the asset class. Werner, put your optimistic hat on or your realistic hat on for 2023, please. Yeah, realistic hat. I think um, sovereign debt, hard currency is in a really good place. You know, ten-year dollar return near or dollar yield near ten percent. And within that, the frontier space has been quite distressed and cut off from external funding markets. And the IMF and the World Bank are playing a crucial role there. There's several policies providing liquidity to these countries. You know, you can pick up good countries like Egypt at 60 cents in the dollar, and those bonds we know eventually are worth par. They're in a five-year IMF program. You know, so there are some interesting opportunities across the frontier space. When we move into local currency debt, we really like what they've been doing in LATAM, orthodox policy, high rates really early, inflation speaking. Those bonds are not trading on the international inflationary story that's out there pushing bond markets they're doing their own thing for instance brazil the election is behind us debt to gdp is falling now they just look in a very different place in their rate hiking cycle than the rest of the market victoria the passing shots go to you Uh, Well, we're blessed with an asset class that has a smorgasbord of opportunities. The overall asset class is cheap. From a credit rating perspective, the double B space looks incredibly attractive. But to come back to where some of this risk premium sits, also long ends in investment grade look very steep and yields are incredibly attractive, particularly in the triple B space there. So once we get over this Fed hump, you know, we could see an enormous rebound in valuations as spreads come down. But from a country perspective, the one area that is offering excessive risk premium We need more clarity on policy going forward and opening up would be China. So, you know, if we had the opening up from the zero COVID policy, some normalization and some growth, along with, you know, we've seen some olive branch from China to the US, if we could see some of those relations thaw, then I think China is poised to have a phenomenal recovery. But there's a lot of things that we need clarity on for now. The one thing I will say about our asset class is many of our companies pre-funded themselves into 2022. We've had net negative issuance this year. We see that continuing next year. And as a result, we see the supply-demand dynamic really skewed towards demand versus supply. So overall, the asset class should be in for a good good return next year. Very good. I hope your optimism is well-placed. Victoria, Werner, Archie, thank you very much for your time. Archie Hart is Portfolio Manager of Emerging Markets Equity. Werner Hey van Patias is Co-Head of Emerging Markets Sovereign and FX. And Victoria Harling, Head of Emerging Market Corporate Debt, all at 91 in London. This podcast is a marketing communication and is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of 91. In South Africa, 91 is an authorized financial services provider.